Hey everyone, this is Obsidian Crow joining Sir Duncan on this week's Still Smug Book Talk for the episode Beyond the Wall. My lords, my ladies, cupbearers and spymasters, shadowbinders and jesters, backfire will rule! Welcome to another Still Smug Book Talk. As ever, it's your dastardly dark heart, Sir Duncan the Fearsome, holder of the Silver Pick and Lord of Castle Sterling on the Sound. Today we'll be covering Game of Thrones Season 7, Episode 6, Beyond the Wall from a book reader's perspective, examining crossover material, book nods, and new information that may inform mysteries that book readers have long speculated about. There will be numerous book spoilers ahead, so if you don't want to have events and information from the A Song of Ice and Fire book series revealed to you, now is your chance to defenestrate the podcast player. That being said, show watchers who lust for information like dragons lust for wolves, and who don't mind book spoilers are welcome to join us. I'll try to discuss and explain things in a way that non-book readers can follow along to, and maybe your show-watching experience will be enhanced by the book information. A special thanks to our guest Obsidian Crow for joining us today. Yeah, man. I just wanted to say thanks for allowing me to join you on this week's episode of Still Smug. It's a pleasure to have you here, brother. You guys can find Obsidian Crow on Facebook at Obsidian Crow Leatherworks. He does some badass leatherwork. You should see his Jon Snow cosplay. It's season 7 that he's working on. All the leather looks gnarly. And you can find him at Obsidian Crow Cosplay on Facebook as well. Yeah, I think we'll be able to cover quite a bit of connections between the novels and the last week's episode. Definitely, man. It's a pretty, uh, pretty crazy episode, right? Pretty intense. <laughs> totally, man. Oh, yeah, you guys can also check out Obsidian Crow's Wolf Dog on Facebook. Just search for Grey Wind the Wolf Dog. But yeah, I'm pretty excited for this. Uh, Going to have some good material to cover. Um... You know, I've been listening to your stuff for quite a while now, and it's it's awesome to chat with people who have also read the books and know all of the back history within the series. Agreed, brother. All right. Spoilers ahead in five, four, three, two, one. Clocking in at 71 minutes beyond the wall was pretty packed with awesome stuff. There's a couple nitpicky things, but um, overall, I really, really liked it. There's a lot of good dialogue, some crazy action. The only thing that I was complaining about was how quickly it took for Gendry to get to East Watch again, to send a raven down to Dragonstone, and then for Daenerys to ride her way back up to beyond the wall to save everybody. It seemed to happen overnight. But upon closer inspection, it seems that there's that Daenerys never explicitly states that she got the raven, so she may have just decided to ride north anyway after having a bad feeling about the situation or something like that. So maybe there's, maybe there's no plot hole or, or no uh, discrepancy in the time period at all. Tell me, Crow, what do you want to talk about first? 
So one of the first comparisons that I noticed was actually at the end of the episode when Danny was perched up on the wall, staring off into the vast wilderness, waiting for any sign of John. Uh, that moment kind of gave me a near-mirror flashback to the good queen Alisane Targaryen, who, during her reign, she flew north with her dragon and visited the wall. Um, of course, her visit was out of boredom because she was just hanging out at Winterfell, and... She didn't almost get murdered by a legion of whites, but now the wall technically has had two dragon queens upon it. So I thought that that was um, a really cool image to kind of see Danny portraying Queen Alysanne in a sense. A wiki of Ice and Fire tells us Queen Alysanne Targaryen, also known as Good Queen Alysanne, was the queen consort of her brother, King Jaehaerys I Targaryen. Alysanne was a dragon rider whose mount was Silverwing. She was daughter of King Aenys I and granddaughter of Aegon I the Conqueror. In 50 AC, she married the king, her eldest surviving brother, Jaehaerys I, the Conciliator, and became queen of the Seven Kingdoms. Their marriage lasted 48 years until Alysanne died, although they were estranged twice during that period of time. Alysanne was Jaehaerys' most trusted advisor and convinced him to forbid the right of the First Knight, although many lords jealously guarded it. For those of you who may not be aware, the right of the First Knight was the right claimed by the lord of a given area to basically deflower the bride of any of their subjects on the night of their wedding before the husband is able to do so. So I'm sure there were a lot of people that were very thankful for Queen Alysanne for eliminating the lord's right of the first night. Alysanne seemed to hold a lot of views that would be appreciated in the current climate of Westeros, or the current climate of our world. Her voice was one who spoke out against her husband's decision to bypass their daughter Rhaenys, the queen who never was, daughter of their eldest son Aemon, who was deceased at the time, who was first in line of succession, in favor of their son Balon. Alysanne was furious, believing there was no reason for Balon to be favored over Rhaenys simply because he was a man and she was a woman. This intense disagreement led to what was called the Second Quarrel, the second of their two estrangements in the year 92 AC. The bypassing of Rhaenys began a tradition among Targaryen royalty to discount female heirs in the line of succession. For this reason, I believe the Danny Alysanne book crossover to be particularly poignant because Alysanne would have been proud and ecstatic to see a female Targaryen ruling as queen, as she believed her granddaughter Rhaenys should have done. Daenerys, by asserting her place in the line of succession and becoming a self-made Targaryen queen, would no doubt essentially be fulfilling a dream of justice for women dreamt of by Queen Alysanne. So I think this is really cool. Oh yeah, man, I totally agree with that. I know you've got some stuff about Alysanne. I actually have a few passages that talk about Queen Elisane, so I'll just read them off. <laughs> uh, a Storm of Swords, John 5. Across the lake, the tower was black again, a dim shape dimly seen. A queen lived there, asked Egret. A queen stayed there for a night. Old Nan had told him the story, but Maester Lewin had confirmed most of it. Elisane, the wife of King Jaehaerys the Consolator. He's called the Old King because he reigned so long, but he was young when he first came to the Iron Throne. In those days, it was his wont to travel over the realm. When he came to Winterfell, he brought his queen, six dragons, and half his court. The king had matters to discuss with his Warden of the North, and Alisane grew bored, 
so she mounted her dragon Silverwing and flew north to see the wall. This village was one of the places where she stopped. Afterward, the small folk painted the top of their holdfast to look like a golden crown she had worn when she spent the night among them. So, it actually looks like John does know some things. <laughs> oh! <laughs> At the wall, Alisande suggested to the Night's Watch that the Night Fort, the oldest and largest castle at the wall, which was too costly to maintain, be replaced with a smaller castle nearby. She used her own jewels to finance the construction of the castle, which was named Deep Lake. King Jaharius later sent men north to build the castle. Alisande thought the Night's Watch was so brave that she convinced Jaharius to double the amount of land held by the Black Brothers. And here's a passage from A Storm of Swords that covers Queen's Crown and this new area of land called the New Gift. A Storm of Swords, Brand 3. The tower stood upon an island, its twin reflected on the still blue waters. When the wind blew, ripples moved across the surface of the lake, chasing one another like boys at play. The oak trees grew thick along the lake shore, a dense stand of them with a litter of fallen acorns on the ground beneath. Beyond them was the village, or what remained of it. It was the first village they had seen since leaving the foothills. Mira had scouted ahead to make certain there was no one lurking amongst the ruins. Sliding in and amongst the oaks and apple trees with her net and spear in hand, she startled three red deer and sent them bounding away through the brush. Summer saw the flash of motion and was after them at once. Bran watched the direwolf lope off, and for a moment wanted nothing so much as to slip his skin and run with him, but Mira was waving for them to come ahead. Reluctantly, he turned away from Summer and urged Hodor on into the village. Jojen walked with them. The ground from here to the wall was grasslands, Bran knew, fallow fields and low rolling hills, high meadows and lowland bogs. It would be much easier going than the mountains behind, but so much open space made Mira uneasy. I feel naked. She confessed. There's no place to hide. Who holds this land? Jojen asked Bran. The Night's Watch, he answered. This is the gift, the new gift, and north of that, Brandon's gift. Maester Lewin had taught him the history. Brandon the Builder gave all the land south of the wall to the Black Brothers, to a distance of twenty-five leagues, for their, for their sustenance and support. He was proud that he still remembered that part. Some maesters say that it was some other Brandon, not the Builder, but it's still Brandon's gift. Thousands of years later, good Queen Alassane visited the wall on her dragon Silverwing, and she thought the Night's Watch was so brave that she had the old king double the size of their lands to fifty leagues, so that was the new gift. He waved a hand. Here, all this. No one had lived in the village for long years, Bran could see. All the houses were falling down even the inn. It had never been much of an inn to look at it, but now all that remained was a stone chimney and two cracked walls, set amongst a dozen apple trees. One was growing up through the common room, where a layer of wet brown leaves and rotting apples carpeted the floor. The air was thick with the smell of them, a cloying, cidery scent that was almost overwhelming. Mira stabbed a few apples with her frog spear, trying to find some still good enough to eat, but they were all too brown and wormy. It was a peaceful spot, still and tranquil and lovely to behold, but Bran thought there was something sad about an empty inn, and Hodor seemed to feel it too. Hodor? he said in a confused sort of way. Hodor? Hodor? This is good land. Jojen picked up a handful of dirt, rubbing it between his fingers. A village, an inn, a stout hold fast in the lake, all these apple trees. 
But where are the people, Bran? Why would they leave such a place? They were afraid of the wildlings, Bran said. Wildlings came over the wall or through the mountains to raid and steal and carry off women. If they catch you, they make your skull into a cup to drink blood, old Nan used to say. The night's watch isn't so strong as it was in Brandon's day or Queen Alessand's, so more get through. The places nearest the wall got raided so much the small folk moved south into the mountains or onto the umberlands east of the King's Road. The Great John's people get raided too, but not so much as the people who used to live in the gift. Jojen Reed turned his head slowly, listening to music only he could hear. We need to shelter here. There's a storm coming, a bad one. Bran looked up at the sky. It had been a beautiful, crisp, clear autumn day, sunny and almost warm. But there were dark clouds off to the west now, that was true, and the wind seemed to be picking up. There's no roof on the inn, and only the two walls, he pointed out. We should go out to the Holdfast. Hodor, said Hodor. Maybe he agreed. We have no boat, Bran. Mira poked through the leaves idly with her frog spear. There's a causeway, a stone causeway hidden under the water. We could walk out. They could, anyway. He would have to ride on Hodor's back, but at least he'd stay dry that way. The reeds exchanged a look. How do you know that? asked Jojen. Have you been here before, my prince? No, old Nan told me. The Holdfast has a golden crown, see? He pointed across the lake. You could see patches of flaking gold paint up around the crenellations. Queen Alessand slept there, so they painted the Merlin's gold in her honor. A causeway. Jojen studied the lake. You are certain? Certain, said Bran. Mira found the foot of it easily enough. Take it away, Obsidian Crow. Um, the second passage that I have is also from John's point of view. A Storm of Swords, John 5. No one has. The last dragons died a hundred years ago or more, but this was before that. Queen Alisane, you say? Good Queen Alisane, they called her later. One of the castles on the wall was named for her as well. Queen's Gate. Before her visit, they called it Snowgate. So, due to this comparison between Daenerys and the good Queen Alisane, uh, just made me kind of wonder if they might actually name, you know, a part of the wall or a gate or a castle after her. Um, I mean, the last Dragon Queen got to have some stuff named after her, so... <laughs> um, but, I mean, in the episode, they're kind of preoccupied and... Should they survive this war, maybe the Night's Watch won't even be needed anymore. Because, um, I mean, essentially that's what the wall is for, is to keep the others out. Um, but, you know, maybe something will pop up where Daenerys will end up having something named after her. <laughs> uh, what do you think on this, Duncan? It's actually a pretty interesting idea. I hadn't considered that, but, uh, I mean, if anybody has earned it, she definitely has. She just saved the Lord ex-lord commander of the night's watch and you know brought back the wildlings and people who had gone risked their lives beyond the wall to uh, try to save the realm so she's definitely done the the night's watch and the wall a service at this point something something serious and so it wouldn't surprise me if they decided to name something after her that'd be pretty cool she's also just the the second dragon queen to have ever visited the wall as far as i know the first in over 200 years so just that's pretty awesome 
So one of the last passages I have on Alisane is from A Feast for Crows, Circe 5. Better than cutting them out of their mouth with a dagger, I suppose. Marjorie's clumsy attempt at seduction were so obvious as to be laughable. Tommen is too young for kisses, so she gives him kittens. Kersey rather wished they were not black, though. Black cats brought ill luck, as Rhaegar's little girl had discovered in this very castle. She would have been my daughter if the Mad King had not played his cruel jape on father. It had to have been the madness that led Ares to refuse Lord Tywin's daughter to take on his son instead, whilst marrying his own son to a feeble Dornish princess with black eyes and a flat chest. The memory of rejection still rankled, even after all these years. Many a night she had watched Prince Rhaegar in the hall, playing his silver-stringed harp with those long, elegant fingers of his. Had any man ever been so beautiful? He was more than a man, though. His blood was the blood of old Valeria, the blood of dragons and gods. When she was just a little girl, her father had promised her that she would marry Rhaegar. She could have not have been more than six or seven. Never speak of it, child, he had told her, smiling his secret smile that only Cersei ever saw. Not until his grace agrees to the betrothal. It must remain our secret for now. And so it had, though once she had drawn a picture of herself flying behind Rhaegar on a dragon, her arms wrapped tight about his chest. When Jaime had discovered it, she told him it was the good queen Elisane and King Jaehaerys. She was ten when she finally saw her prince in the flesh, at the tourney her lord father had thrown to welcome King Aerys to the west. Viewing stands had been raised beneath the walls of Lannisport, and the cheers of the small folk had echoed off of Casterly Rock like a rolling thunder. They cheered father twice as loudly as they cheered the king, the queen recalled, but only half as loudly as they cheered for Prince Rhaegar. So I'm really curious to see how Cersei reacts when she actually does come, you know, face to face with Jon Snow, who is the son of Rhaegar since she has seen Rhaegar's daughter previously in her life. John and uh, Daenerys as well, too. It'll be interesting to see how she reacts to seeing um, Rhaegar's younger sister. And if she thought Rhaegar was the most beautiful man ever, then she's going to be super pissed when she sees Daenerys and sees the most beautiful woman ever um, and realize that she was wrong about interpreting Maggie the Frog's prophecy of the younger, more beautiful queen coming to take everything she holds dear as being Marjorie Tyrell, when it almost certainly was referring to Daenerys Targaryen, the dragon queen. Oh, did you know that um, one of the ships, actually I think it was Stannis' main ship, was also named after Queen Alysanne. So there's kind of a book nod there as well considering that Stannis has also been to the Wall, and it was one of the first places that he went um, after the Battle of Blackwater. That's actually a really cool catch. So maybe the fact that his ship's name was Alisan was kind of hinting to the fact that he would eventually head north the same way that she did. And it seems that Queen Alisan was pretty much universally loved, especially considering she was given the name the Good Queen, um, so it makes perfect sense that Daenerys would be mirroring her in action um, and having having the TV show reference this queen, because if there's one queen that Danny would want to live up to, it would probably be Alice Ann. Pretty awesome. So that pretty much wraps it up on the good queen, Alice Ann. Uh If you want to know more about her, obviously I'd recommend reading A Knight of the Seven Kingdoms, um, 
uh, a wiki of ice and fire. They got all sorts of back history on, you know, pretty much every character out there. <laughs> Definitely true. And for anybody who is unaware of what the book A Knight of the Seven Kingdoms is, it's the collection of the three Duncan Egg novellas. Really awesome stories. The audio the uh, audio book is narrated by Harry Lloyd. If you get the the audio book from Audible. Um, and Harry Lloyd is Harry Lloyd is the guy who played Viserys on the TV show, and he actually does a really really awesome job reading the audiobook. I enjoyed it very much, so I highly recommend that as well. So our next book crossover is pretty funny. It's when Tormund and Gendry and the guys are talking about having sex north of the Wall, and Gendry says, "There's not a living woman within a hundred miles of here." Tormund responds saying, "You've got to make do with what we've got," <laughs> basically saying, "We'll make do with you, Gendry." But it's funny because then the next thing that happens is they run into a bear. And uh, Tormund is famous for having allegedly slept with a bear, like had sex with a bear. Um, there's actually a, a scene in the show where Tormund starts telling the story and Ygritte gets all mad and says, <laughs> basically, You never forked a forking bear. Nice and soft down below. Oh, she was no ordinary beast. Benny's the man with a rule. I know you never fucked a bear. You know you never fucked a bear. Right now, I don't want to think about the bear you never fucked. But here's the, uh, the book story behind the TV myth. A Storm of Swords, John 1. Mance Raider beckoned John closer. If you would join us, you'd best know us. The man you took me for is Stir, Magnar of Then. Magnar means lord in the old tongue. The earless man stared at John coldly as Mance turned to the white-bearded one. Our ferocious chicken-eater here is my loyal Tormund. The woman... Tormund rose to his feet. Hold. You gave Stir his title. Give me mine. Mance Raider laughed. As you wish. Jon Snow, before you stands Tormund Giantsbane. Tall talker, horn blower, and breaker of ice. And here also Tormund Thunderfist, husband to bears, the mead king of Ruddy Hall, speaker to gods and father of hosts. That sounds more like me, said Tormund. Well met, Jon Snow. I am fond of wargs, as it happens, though not of Starks. A Storm of Swords, Jon too. Is it true you killed a giant once? He asked Tormund as they rode. Ghost sloped silently behind them, leaving paw prints in the new-fallen snow. Now why would you doubt a mighty man like me? It was winter and I was half a boy, and stupid the way boys are. I went too far and my horse died, and then a storm caught me. A true storm, not no little dusting such as this. Ha! I knew I'd freeze to death before it broke, so I found me a sleeping giant. Cut open her belly and crawled right up inside her. Kept me warm enough, she did, but the stink near did for me. The worst thing was, she woke up when the spring come and took me for her babe. Suckled me for three whole moons before I could get away. Ha! There's times I missed the taste of giant's milk, though. If she nursed you, you couldn't have killed her. I never did. But see, you don't go spreading that about. Torment Giant's Bane has a better ring to it than Torment Giant's Babe. And that's the honest truth of it. 
So how did you come by your other names? John asked. Mons called you the Hornblower, didn't he? Mead King of Ruddy Hole? Husband to Bears? Father of Hosts? It was the horn-blowing he particularly wanted to hear about, but he dared not ask too plainly. And Joraman blew the horn of winter and woke giants from the earth. Is that where they had come from, them and their mammoths? Had Mance Raider found the horn of Joraman and given it to Tormund Thunderfist to blow? Are all crows so curious? asked Tormund. Well, here's a tale for you. It were another winter, colder even than the one I spent inside the giant, and snowing day and night, snowflakes as big as your head, not these little things. It snowed so hard the whole village was half buried. I was in me ruddy hall, with only a cask of mead to keep me company and nothing to do but drink it. The more I drank, the more I got to thinking about this woman lived close by. A fine, strong woman with the biggest pair of teats you ever saw. She had a temper on her, that one, but oh, she could be warm, too. And in the deep of winter, a man needs his warmth. The more I drank, the more I thought about her, and the more I thought, the harder me member got, till I couldn't suffer it no more. Fool that I was, I bundled myself up in furs from head to heels, wrapped a winding wool around me face, and set off to find her. The snow was coming down so hard I got turned around once or twice, and the wind blew right through me and froze me bones. But finally I come on her, all bundled up like I was. The woman had a terrible temper, and she put up quite the fight when I laid hands on her. It was all I could do to carry her home and get her out of them furs. But when I did, oh, she was hotter than I remembered. And we had a fine old time, and then I went to sleep. Next morning, when I woke up, the snow had stopped and the sun was shining. But I was in no fit state to enjoy it. All ripped and torn I was, and half me member bit right off. And there on me floor was a she-bear's pelt. And soon enough the free folk were telling tales of this bold bear they seen in the woods with the queerest pair of cubs behind her. Ha! He slapped a meaty thigh. Would that I could find her again. She was fine to lay with, that bear. Never was a woman gave me such a fight, nor such strong sons, neither. What could you do if you did find her? John asked, smiling. You said she bit your member off. Only half. And half me member is twice as long as any other man's. Tormund snorted. Now as to you, is it true they cut your members off when they take you for the wall? No, John said, affronted. I think it must be true. Else why refuse a grit? She hardly give you any fight at all, seems to me. The girl wants you in her, that's plain enough to see. Too bloody plain, thought John, and it seems that half the column had seen it. He studied the falling snow so Tormund might not see him redden. I am a man of the night's watch, he reminded himself, so why did he feel like some blushing maid? And now that we've finally seen a snow bear, that brings us to our next crossover, which is snow bears. They've been referenced repeatedly through the books, and we have yet to have seen them until recently on the TV show. Interestingly, D&D, the directors or the showrunners of the show, have been trying for four years to get a zombie zombie bear on the show, a white bear. Um, So finally they were able to do it. But here are some quotes referencing snow bears from the books. A Game of Thrones, Tyrion 3. 
He had been born in the dead of winter, a terrible cruel one that Maesters said had lasted near three years, but Tyrion's earliest memories were of spring. When I was a boy, it said that a long summer always meant a long winter to come. This summer has lasted nine years, Tyrion, and a tenth will soon be upon us. Think on that. When I was a boy, Tyrion replied, my wet nurse told me that one day, if men were good, the gods would give the world a summer without ending. Perhaps we have been better than we thought, and the great summer is finally at hand, he grinned. The Lord Commander did not seem amused. You are not fool enough to believe that, my lord. Already the days grow shorter. There can be no mistake. Aemon has had letters from the Citadel, findings in accord with his own. The end of summer stares us in the face. Mormont reached out and clutched Tyrion tightly by the hand. You must make them understand. I tell you, my lord, the darkness is coming. There are wild things in the woods. Direwolves and mammoths and snow bears the size of oryx. And I have seen darker shapes in my dreams. In your dreams, Tyrion echoed, thinking how badly he needed another strong drink. A Game of Thrones, John 5. Every man who wore the black walked the wall, and every man was expected to take up steel in its defense. But the rangers were the true fighting heart of the Night's Watch. It was they who dared ride beyond the wall, sweeping through the haunted forest and the icy mountain heights west of the Shadow Tower, fighting wildlings and giants and monstrous snow bears. Not everyone, said Halder. It's the builders for me. What use would rangers be if the wall fell down? And in that passage, we even get a little foreshadowing of the wall falling down. Who knows? People have been speculating that may, that may happen at the end of this season. And I thought it may have if we had maybe seen some hint of Jorman's horn coming into play. But now that they have an ice dragon or a you know an undead dragon, I'm not sure that the wall will fall down. Maybe they'll melt a hole through it or you know fly over it or create an ice bridge around it or something. Who knows? It'd be cool if it fell down, though. I mean, it's, there's been a lot of foreshadowing for that the whole series, so hopefully that'll happen. That'd be pretty epic. Yeah, definitely. So the snow bears also refer to our wildling friend, Warg Varamir Sixskins, who gets a point-of-view chapter in the prologue of Dance of Dragons and has a snow bear who he's warged with. We first see Varamir in A Storm of Swords, John 2. Verimer Sixskins, a small mouse of a man whose steed was a savage white snow bear that stood thirteen feet tall in its hind legs. And wherever the bear and Verimer went, three wolves and a shadow cat came following. John had been in his presence only once, and only once had been enough. The mere sight of the man made, had made him bristle, even as the fur on the back of Ghost's neck had bristled at the sight of the bear and that long black and white cat. A Dance with Dragons, Prologue. Years later, he had tried to find his parents, to tell them that their lump had become the great Varamir Sixskins, but both of them were dead and burned, gone into the trees and streams, gone into the rocks and earth, gone to dirt and ashes. That was what the woods witch told his mother the day Bump died. Lump did not want to be a clod of earth. The boy had dreamed of a day when bards would sing of his deeds and pretty girls would kiss him. When I am grown, I will be the king beyond the wall, Lump had promised himself. He never had, but he had come close. Varamir Sixskins was a name men feared. He rode to battle on the back of a snow bear, thirteen feet tall, kept three wolves and a shadow cat in thrall, and sat at the right hand of Mance Raider. 
It was Mance who brought me to this place. I should not have listened. I should have slipped inside my bear and torn him to pieces. Further along in the prologue, Vermeer had lost control of his other beasts in the agony of the eagle's death. His shadow cat had raced into the woods whilst his snow bear turned her claws on those around her, ripping apart four men before falling to a spear. She would have slain Vermeer had he come within her reach. The bear hated him, enraged each time he wore her skin or climbed upon her back. So that's Vermeer Sixskins, whose uh, prologue chapter has interesting implications for the last chapter of A Dance with Dragons, considering he dies and wargs out of his own body into another person's or animal's body at the end of his chapter. Could be hints of what happened with Jon Snow at the end of A Dance with Dragons, something entirely untouched by the TV show, but that may be you know, important for the books. He may have warged into Ghost or something else. So this final quote about snow bears is the closest one to what we get on the show, and it comes from A Dance with Dragons, Brand 3. The moon was full and flat. Summer prowled through the silent woods, a long gray shadow that grew more gaunt with every hunt. For living game could not be found. The ward upon the cave mouth still held. The dead men could not enter. The snows had buried most of them again, but they were still there, hidden, frozen, waiting. Other dead things came to join them things that had once been men and women, even children. Dead ravens sat on bare brown branches, wings crusted with ice. A snow bear crashed through the brush, huge and skeletal, half its head sloughed away to reveal the skull beneath. Summer and his pack fell upon it and tore it to pieces. Afterward they gorged, though the meat was rotted and half frozen, and moved even as they ate it. So obviously, that's definitely the closest one we get to the Zombear that we've had on the TV show, which was awesome. So thank you, D&D, &D, for fighting for four years to get that on the air. <laughs> what have you got next, Crow? One thing I think we should bring up is the comparison between Jon Snow and Torrin Stark, uh, who was the last king in the North. In this episode, I mean, a major climatic part is at the end when they're on the boat, and figuratively Jon Snow bends the knee to Danny. So here is a passage from The World of Ice and Fire, The Reign of the Dragons, The Conquest. Just so you guys know, we featured some of this quote a couple weeks ago, but I think it's worth listening to again in this context. Go ahead, Crow. When Torn Stark reached the banks of the Trident, he found a host half again the size of his own awaiting him on the south side of the river. Riverlords, Westermen, Stormlanders, Men of the Reach, all had come. And above their camp, Beleriand, Meraxus, and Vagar prowled the sky in ever-widening circles. Torn's scouts had seen the ruins of Harrenhal, where slow red fires still burned beneath the rubble. The king in the north had heard many accounts of the Field of Fire as well. He knew that the same fate might await him if he tried to force a crossing of the river. Some of his lord's bannermen urged him to attack all the same, insisting that northern valor would carry the day. Others urged him to fall back to Moat Kaelin and make his stand there on the northern soil. The king's bastard brother, Brandon Snow, offered to cross the trident alone under the cover of darkness to slay the dragons whilst they slept. King Torin did send Brandon Snow across the trident, but he crossed with three maesters by his side, not to kill but to treat. All through the night messages went back and forth. The next morning Torin Stark himself crossed the trident. There, upon the south bank of the trident, he knelt, laid the ancient crown of the kings of winter at Aegon's feet, and swore to be his man. 
He rose as Lord of Winterfell and Warden of the North, a king no more. From that day to this day, Torrance Stark is remembered as the king who knelt. But no Northman left his burned bones beside the trident, and the swords Aegon collected from Lord Stark and his vassals were not twisted or melted or bent. Now once again Aegon Targaryen and his queen's parted company. Aegon turned south once more, marching toward Old Town, whilst his two sisters mounted their dragons. Visenya for a second attempt at the Vale of Arryn, and Rhaenys for the Sunspear in the deserts of Dorne. So this really makes me wonder how Jon is going to be viewed by the North. You know, Torin bent the knee and forever was remembered as the king who knelt. That's true. Um, but I think there was a certain honor in his decision as well. I mean, if people question John's decision, all he has to really say is, you know, Torin bent the knee and we're all standing here today. The only difference between John and Torin is that John did it willingly. Uh, Torin was kind of forced by Aegon. That's totally true. And plus, on top of this, uh, John's people are already all pissed off at him for abandoning them for a few weeks to go treat with Daenerys. You know, they see him go off for a couple of weeks, and then all of a sudden, there goes the North. <laughs> um, and then he's, you know, kind of hooking up with his aunt, which nobody really knows about anyways. Um, so let's say Dragon Queen. And it's not like if John didn't bend the knee at that moment that all of these bannermen and everybody would be roasted alive either. Danny has, you know, made it clear that they were going to work together anyway. So, Duncan, how do you feel about um, John and his figurative kneeling? <laughs> I'm not convinced yet that it's going to play out like like bending the knee normally does. I think um, she may turn it into a marriage proposal in her mind and accept it um, and surprise him or something like that. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I wouldn't be too sure that that it actually goes down that way. But speaking of Danny, uh, that brings us to our next point, which is Danny. I thought it was so funny that she seems to not want John to call her Danny, because um, you know, as immediately as she said it, I realized we had barely, if ever, heard anybody refer to her as Danny on the show, which is hilarious because in the books the nickname Danny is written a total of eleven hundred and thirty-eight times. That's three hundred thirty-nine times that Danny is written in a Game of Thrones. In A Clash of Kings, it's 154 times. In A Storm of Swords, 301 times. And in A Dance with Dragons, 344 times. If you haven't read the books, it may surprise you to hear that the nickname Danny is only mentioned in four of the five books in the A Song of Ice and Fire series. That's because books four and five are essentially two halves of the same story, covering the same time period, but half of the point-of-view characters have chapters exclusively in book four, a Feast for Crows, and the other half have their POV, point-of-view characters exclusively in Book 5, A Dance with Dragons, including Daenerys. It's a strange layout that really left many readers frustrated, having to wait twice as long from Book 3 until Book 5 to hear what happened with their favorite characters, or if they're just reading it, having their characters split between two books, so they have to read one and then read the next book after they finish the thousand page-long book before it just to find out what happened with the characters in the meantime. So given these facts, I highly recommend to anybody and everybody that's reading the books to do what's called uh, the boiled leather tandem read. It's a suggested reading order of chapters that kind of jump back and forth from books four and five, allowing you to experience the two books simultaneously. 
it creates a much more cohesive flowing experience than reading the two books separately in the order they were released in my opinion and uh everybody that i know that's done the tandem read pretty much agrees with that so uh yeah do that definitely do that the tandem read boiled leather tandem read but yes, George R.R. R. Martin frequently refers to Danny as such in her point of view chapters, although I don't believe we've ever hear her opinion on the nickname Danny itself in the books. My guess is that on the show, she eventually comes around and allows John to call her Danny. All right, our next subject is our beloved Viserion, who is now a white dragon. And this is a particularly interesting development because it could mean that in the near future we will have dragon versus dragon battles, um, or at least a battle, which is very remindful of an incident in the books um, that took place hundreds of years ago that was referred to as the Dance of Dragons. Sorry, the, uh, the Dance of the Dragons. A wiki of ice and fire tells us the Dance of the Dragons was a civil war during Targaryen rule of the Seven Kingdoms, a war of succession between Aegon II and his half-sister Rhaenyra over their father Viserys I's throne. The war was fought from 129 AC to 131 AC. It saw the deaths of both rival monarchs and crowning of Rhaenyra's son Aegon III. I've talked a little bit before about the Dance of the Dragons with you guys, but um... We'll do some more today. I'll, I'll try to read some different stuff than I have before. In early 2013, George R.R. R. Martin announced that the anthology Dangerous Women, previously expected to include the fourth Duncan Egg story, would instead include the novella The Princess and the Queen, which Martin described as the true, mostly, story of the origins of the Dance of the Dragons. The abridged version in The Princess and the Queen consists of 30,000 words, while the complete 80,000-word history of the Civil War is planned for fire and blood, which may come out next year. From a wiki of ice and fire again. King Viserys I Targaryen had three children by his first queen, Emma Arryn, but only one, Princess Rhaenyra, survived to adulthood. Lacking a son to succeed him, Viserys began to train Rhaenyra to be his heir. Young Rhaenyra was included in discussions of the affairs of state and was allowed to participate in meetings of the small council. Many of the nobles took note, and Rhaenyra soon acquired a clique of, of adherents and supporters. After the passing of Queen Emma in 105 AC, Viserys named Rhaenyra his heir, and hundreds of lords and landed kings paid obeisance to her. Viserys's declaration disregarded precedents from 92 AC and 101 AC. And as a side note, the precedent from 92 AC was what we discussed earlier with Queen Alysanne, having the quarrel with her husband, Jaehaerys I, the conciliator, for choosing their son, Balon, over their granddaughter, Rhaenys, in the line of succession. So the king Viserys I remarried again in 106 AC, this time to Alicent Hightower, and he had four more children, Aegon, Helena, Aemond, and Daeron. In 111 AC, a great tourney was held at King's Landing on the fifth anniversary of Viserys' marriage to Alicent. During the opening feast, Queen Alicent wore a green gown, while Princess Rhaenyra dressed in the red and black of House Targaryen. Note was taken, and thereafter it became the custom to refer to the Greens and the Blacks when talking of the Queen's party and of the party of the Princess, respectively. Wearing Rhaenyra's favor, Sir Criston Cole unhorsed all of Alicent's champions in the tourney, including two of her cousins and her youngest brother, Sir Gwain Hightower. Viserys I strengthened Rhaenyra's place in the succession by marrying her in 114 AC to Sir Lenor Valerion, 
who himself had Targaryen blood through his mother, Princess Rhaenys. The marriage caused a falling out between Rhaenyra and Kristen Cole. Rhaenyra gave birth to three sons, Jacarys, Lucerys, and Joffrey Valerian, during their marriage. Although there were rumors that the father of those princes was not Lenore, but Sir Harwin Strong. After Lenore was murdered in Spicetown in 120 AC, Rhaenyra married her uncle, Prince Daemon Targaryen, younger brother to Viserys I. Her sons by him were Aegon the Younger, called so to distinguish him from his uncle, Alicent's Aegon, who on occasion was called Aegon the Elder, and Viserys. The relationship between Rhaenyra and Alicent declined early in Alicent's marriage to Viserys, since both ladies had been trying to be the realm's first lady, and there could only be one. As a consequence of their bad relation, Alicent's sons did not take to Rhaenyra's sons. Alicent's father, Sir Otto Hightower, had also disliked Rhaenyra's second husband, Prince Daemon, since the beginning of Viserys' reign, though the exact reasons are unknown. So the Dance of Dragons really starts to kick off at the next major event, which is essentially a coup, um, which takes place at the, the Small Council Meeting. Upon the death of King Viserys I Targaryen, Queen Alicent and Sir Criston Cole sent out the King's Guard to summon the small council members. During the gathering, the conversation quickly stirred towards Rhaenyra's coronation, but Sir Otto Hightower, the Hand of the King, told those who had gathered that Prince Aegon the Elder should be crowned, whilst Lord Lyman Beesbury, the Master of Coin, insisted Rhaenyra should be crowned a queen. Several other council members countered him. Sir Tyland Lannister argued that the oaths made to Rhaenyra in 105 AC had not been made by them since it had been 24 years. Lord Jasper Wilde mentioned that the old king Jaehaerys I twice chose a male heir over the female heir and her descendants. And Sir Otto argued that Rhaenyra was married to Prince Daemon, who would become the true ruler should Rhaenyra gain the crown. Both Hightowers argued that not only they, but also Alicent's children would die should Rhaenyra become their queen. It would later be said that Prince Aegon only reluctantly accepted the crown because his mother, brothers, sisters, and children would otherwise be killed by Rhaenyra. Grand Maester Orwell predicted a war, believing that Rhaenyra would never be willing to give up her birthright, and had dragons at her disposal. While Lyman declared that he was not willing to listen to people plotting to steal her crown and attempted to leave, Sir Criston killed him. This made Lord Beesbury the first casualty of the Dance of the Dragons. After Beesbury's death, the Green Council made their plans, vowing their loyalty to their new king and arresting all those in King's Landing who could be loyal to Rhaenyra. To all those who might be loyal to Aegon, ravens were sent. Meanwhile, Rhaenyra remained on Dragonstone, unaware of what had happened. And you could pretty much guess what took place after that. It ended up being a war between the Greens and the Blacks. Eighteen fire-breathing dragons split between two armies, battling each other, dogfighting in the sky. And, and I mean, it wasn't just one big battle. This took place over a, a series of fights and circumstances and a very complex uh, breakdown of what happened that we won't get into right now. But you can uh, see how the parallel exists from this week's episode with having a dragon turn to the dark side, essentially, um, where we could see dragon versus dragon combat, just like in the Dance of the Dragons. Yeah. All right, our next little book connection, potentially, um, or something that may mean something for the books or for the TV show in 
terms of book information, if I'm not already being confusing enough for you, <laughs> is uh, <laughs> when Beric and the Hound are talking at the end. This, you know, obviously this week we had Thoros die, so that's the end of the line for these guys. Basically, this is their last life, to put it in video game terms. And so when they were, when Beric was separating with the uh, with the Hound, he said, "We'll meet again, Clegane," and the Hound said, "Fucking hope not." in typical hound fashion, but I'm predicting that Beric will somehow save the hound. And I think that the hound will be the new recipient of Beric's life um, in the place of Lady Stoneheart. The hound's not looking forward to being reunited with Beric is typical for his attitude, but it could also foreshadow that something bad will happen to the hound the next time they see each other. Maybe he'll be killed and Beric will have to pass his own flame of life forward to Sandor like he did to Lady Stoneheart in the books. Then again, Beric could be there to save John the same way. I have a theory that in the books it could be Lady Stoneheart who actually revives John after he's stabbed at the wall. And uh, he may be frozen in the black cells for a little while before it actually occurs. Sorry, ice cells. Um, but maybe Beric is fulfilling that role of Lady Stoneheart in in this uh, in the series, and he could be there to save John in her stead in case something happens to John. But I'm leading towards the Hound. I think there's some connection between Beric and the Hound that's going to be important in the future. Our next subject is whether or not John looks like Ned. Okay, so I'm starting to question on if anybody remembers what Ned Stark looked like, because earlier in the season we have. Um, Arya and Sansa down in the crypts, you know, they're like, oh, his face is wrong. And they're like, oh, everybody who knew him is dead. So and in, in this episode of Beyond the Wall, Beric Dondarin, I believe, you know, he tells Jon, you know, you don't look like him. You must take after your mother. <laughs> and then in, in this passage, it's just kind of funny because Stannis is saying, "Yeah, oh yeah, you look like Ned Stark. So I guess nobody in Westeros remembers what Ned Stark looked like. A Storm of Swords, John 11. Stannis snorted. I know Janice Sint, and I knew Ned Stark as well. Your father was no friend of mine, but only a fool would doubt his honor or his honesty. You have his look. A big man, Stannis Baratheon, towered over Jon, but he was so gaunt that he looked ten years older than he was. I know more than you might think, Jon Snow, and I know that it was you who found the dragonglass dagger that Randall Tarly's son used to slay the other. Ghost found it. The blade was wrapped in a ranger's cloak and buried beneath the fists of the first men. There were other blades as well, spearheads, arrowheads, all dragonglass. So yeah, it's pretty interesting. We're getting mixed reports of whether or not John seems to look like Ned. Although I liked in this episode when Beric said, you must take after your mother, it was sort of a nod to the fact that his mother is Lyanna Stark and that Ned isn't, in fact, his father at all. Our next little subject here is about the Frozen Lake battle. I think that's what they're calling it at HBO. But it was sort of remindful of the Field of Fire, um, where we saw the three dragons of Aegon, Rhaenys, and Visenya Targaryen all fighting at the same battle at the same time for the only time in, uh, in Westerosi history that those three dragons, Balerion, the Black Dread, Meraxes, and Vagar, all flew together in battle. So it was cool seeing our three all flying together in battle as well, fighting off the whites at the Ice Lake. 
So it's just kind of funny. I'm thinking to myself, what should this battle be called? The first one with the three original dragons was the Field of Fire. So would this be the Field of Fire and Ice? Or would it be the Field of Ice and Fire? Or the Lake of Fire? Or the Frozen Lake of Fire? Uh, I don't know. There's just a lot of potential nicknames for it. There's also an interesting little passage from A Storm of Swords where Danny is dreaming of a battle that sort of resembles this fight, except it's on a different body of water, which was the Trident, where her brother Rhaegar was killed, and John's father. A Storm of Swords, Daenerys III. That night she dreamt that she was Rhaegar, riding to the Trident, but she was mounted on a dragon, not a horse. When she saw the usurper's rebel host across the river, they were armored in all in ice, but she bathed them in dragon fire, and they melted away like dew and turned the trident into a torrent. Some small part of her knew that she was dreaming, but another part exulted. This is how it was meant to be. The other was a nightmare, and I have only now awakened. So we talked about Viserion and how he's now an undead dragon, maybe a white, maybe a white walker, um, depending on how you interpret it, or maybe we'll never even find out. But... It is possible that, like the White Walkers, after receiving the Night King's touch, he may have undergone a physiological transformation. With the White Walkers, they go from being humans to being ice beings and dragging, delivering cold with them wherever they go. Flames gutter out when they walk past, for instance. So it's possible that drag that um, Viserion could be transformed into the, you know, equivalent of an ice dragon. Although, you know, not being a real ice dragon, he wasn't born as an ice dragon. But George R. R. Martin has actually written a children's book called The Ice Dragon, and there's a description of an ice dragon from this book that I would like to read. The Ice Dragon, Chapter 2, Secrets in the Snow She did not know when she had first seen it. It seemed to her that it had always been a part of her life, a vision glimpsed during the deep of winter, sweeping across the frigid sky on wings serene and blue. Ice dragons were rare, even in those days, and whenever it was seen, the children would all point in wonder while the old folks muttered and shook their heads. It was a sign of a long and bitter winter when ice dragons were abroad in the land. An ice dragon had been seen flying across the face of the moon on the night Adara had been born, people said, and each winter since it had been seen again, and those winters had been very bad indeed the spring coming later each year. So the people would set fires and pray and hope to keep the ice dragon away, and Adara would fill with fear, but it never worked. Every year the ice dragon returned. Adara knew it came for her. The ice dragon was large, half again the size of the scaled green war dragons that Hal and his fellows had. Adara had heard legends of wild dragons larger than mountains, but she'd never seen any. Hal's dragon was big enough, to be sure, five times the size of a horse, but it was small compared to the ice dragon, and ugly besides. The ice dragon was a crystalline white, that shade of white that is so hard and cold that it is almost blue. It was covered with hoarfrost, so when it moved its skin broke and crackled as the crust on the snow crackles beneath the man's boots, and flakes of rime fell off. Its eyes were clear and deep and icy. Its wings were vast and bat-like, colored all a faint translucent blue. Adara could see the clouds through them, and oftentimes the moon and stars, when the beast wheeled in frozen circles through the skies. Its teeth were icicles, a triple row of them, jagged spears of unequal length, white against its deep blue maw. 
When the ice dragon beat its wings, the cold winds blew and the snow swirled and scurried, and the world seemed to shrink and shiver. Sometimes when a door flew open in the cold of winter, driven by a sudden gust of wind, the householder would run to bolt it and say, An ice dragon flies nearby. And when the ice dragon opened its great mouth and exhaled, it was not fire that came streaming out. The burning, sulfurous stink of lesser dragons. The ice dragon breathed cold. Ice formed when it breathed. Warmth fled. Fires guttered and went out, shriven by the chill. Trees froze to their slow, secret souls, and their limbs turned brittle and cracked from their own weight. Animals turned blue and whimpered and died, their eyes bulging and their skin covered over with frost. The ice dragon breathed death into the world, death and quiet and cold. But Adara was not afraid. She was a winter child, and the ice dragon was her secret. So the land where this book, The Ice Dragon, takes place is not Westeros, although it does exhibit similar characteristics. And in Westeros, we have yet to see a, um, an ice dragon, but there may be hints or foreshadowing of a future ice dragon in the A Song of Ice and Fire books. A constellation is called the ice dragon, and it's mentioned numerous times. A Clash of Kings, Bran 5. Osha, Bran asked as they crossed the yard. Do you know the way north? To the wall and... And even past? The way is easy. Look for the ice dragon and chase the blue star in the rider's eye. She backed through a door and started up the winding steps. A storm of swords, Bran too. No roads ran through the twisted mountain valleys where they walked now. Between the gray stone peaks lay still blue lakes, long and deep and narrow, and the green gloom of endless piney woods. The russet and gold of autumn leaves grew less common when they left the wolf's wood to climb amongst the old flint hills, and vanished by the time those hills had turned to mountains. Giant gray-green sentinels loomed above them now, and spruce and fir and soldier pines in endless profusion. The undergrowth was sparse beneath them, the forest floor carpeted in green needles. When they lost their way, as happened once or twice, they need only wait for a clear, cold night when the clouds did not intrude, and look up in the sky for the ice dragon. The blue star in the dragon's eye pointed the way north, as Osha told him once. A Storm of Swords, John Three. The last night fell black and moonless, but for once the sky was clear. I'm going up the hill to look for ghost, he told the Thens at the cave mouth, and they grunted and let him pass. So many stars, he thought, as he trudged up the slope through pines and firs and ash. Maester Lewin had taught him his stars as a boy in Winterfell. He had learned the names of the twelve houses of heaven and the rulers of each. He could find the seven wanderers sacred to the faith. He was old friends with the ice dragon, the shadow cat, the moon maid, and the sword of the morning. All those he shared with the grit, but not some of the others. We look up at the stars and see such different things. The king's crown was the cradle, to hear her tell it. The stallion was the horned lord. The red wanderer that Septons preached was sacred to their smith up there was called the thief. And when the thief was in the moon maid, that was a propitious time for a man to steal a woman, Ygritte insisted. Like the night you stole me, the thief was bright that night. I never meant to steal you, he said. I never knew you were a girl until my knife was at your throat. A Storm of Swords, John 5. Thunder rumbled softly in the distance, but above him the clouds were breaking up. John searched the sky until he found the ice dragon, 
then turned the mare north for the wall in Castle Black. A Storm of Swords, Davos 6. At the north window, he leaned against the sill for a breath of the cold night air, hoping to catch a glimpse of the mad Prendos raising sail, but the sea seemed black and empty as far as the eye could see. Is she gone already? He could only pray that she was, and the boy with her. A half-moon was sliding in and out amongst the thin, high clouds, and Davos could see familiar stars. There was the galley, sailing west. There, the crone's lantern, four bright stars enclosed in a golden haze. The clouds hid most of the ice dragon, all but the bright blue eye that marked due north. The sky is full of smugglers' stars. They were old friends, those stars. Davos hoped that meant good luck. But when he lowered his gaze from the sky to the castle ramparts, he was not so certain. The wings of the stone dragons cast great black shadows in the light from the night fire. He tried to tell himself that they were no more than carvings, cold and lifeless. This was their place, once. A place of dragons and dragon lords, the seat of House Targaryen. The Targaryens were the blood of old Valyria. The ice dragon is mentioned in Duncan Egg as well. The sworn sword... For once, Egg had nothing to say. The gloom was deepening around them. Lantern bugs moved slowly through the trees, their little lights like so many drifting stars. There were stars in the sky as well, more stars than any man could ever hope to count, even if he lived to be as old as King Jaehaerys. Dunk need only lift his eyes to find familiar friends. The stallion and the sow, the king's crown and the crone's lantern, the galley, ghost, and moon maid. But there were clouds to the north, and the blue eye of the ice dragon was lost to him the blue eye that pointed north. There are also numerous references to literal ice dragons in the book series. A Storm of Swords, John 8. It was all John could do to keep up with Maester Aemon. The ice pressed close around them, and he could feel the cold seeping into his bones, the weight of the wall above his head. It felt like walking down the gullet of an ice dragon. The tunnel took a twist and then another. Pip unlocked a second iron gate. They walked farther, turned again, and saw a light ahead, faint and pale through the ice. That's bad, John knew at once. That's very bad. A Dance with Dragons, John 7. They rode the winch lift back to the ground. The wind was gusting, cold as the breath of the ice dragon in the tales old Nan had told when John was a boy. The heavy cage was swaying. From time to time it scraped against the wall, starting small crystalline showers of ice that sprinkled in the sunlight as they fell, like shards of broken glass. A Dance with Dragons, John 8. The road beneath the wall was as dark and cold as the belly of an ice dragon and as twisty as a serpent. Dolorous Ed led them through with a torch in hand. The world of ice and fire, beyond the free cities, the shivering sea... Of all the queer and fabulous denizens of the Shivering Sea, however, the greatest are the ice dragons. These colossal beasts, many times larger than the dragons of Valyria, are said to be made of living ice, with eyes of pale blue crystal and vast, translucent wings through which the moon and stars can be glimpsed as they wheel across the sky. Whereas common dragons, if any dragon can truly be said to be common, breathe flame, ice dragons supposedly breathe cold, a chill so terrible that it can freeze a man solid in half a heartbeat. Sailors from half a hundred nations have glimpsed these great beasts over the centuries, so mayhaps there is some truth behind the tales. Archmaester Margate has suggested that many legends of the North, freezing mists, ice ships, Cannibal Bay, and the like, can be explained as distorted reports of ice dragon activity. 
though an amusing notion, and not without a certain elegance, this remains the purest conjecture. As ice dragons supposedly melt when slain, no actual proof of their existence has ever been found. This is kind of similar to White Walkers, actually. When we've seen when John kills them with Longclaw, or when Sam killed that White Walker with um, the the uh, Dragonglass Dagger, they seem to shatter into ice, which I'm sure would just melt away as um, in the sun. What do you got next for us, Crow? In the episode, we get this scene between John and Jorah, and John tries to give Longclaw back to Jorah um, because his father, Jorah's father, uh, originally intended for Jorah to have it, but because of Jorah's exile and all of that that went down, he ended up hanging on to it and then years later gave it to John, who was just a new recruit at the wall, but saved him from a white. And in that scene, John actually burns his hand. So I'm one of the people that doesn't think John is fireproof, like Daenerys. I mean, that he his hand was burnt. It was in a glove for, like, what, three weeks? Um, <laughs> but, you know, there, we just have this really powerful scene between John and Jorah about this family keepsake that is, you know, it, it's it's a major player in this war. Um, it's one of the, I think, eight Valerian steel swords that are still known, but the TV show doesn't really talk about very many of them. <laughs> and this passage kind of, you know, signals, you know, they're out there. Longclaw is out there with them. They go walking out into these white winds and the, the cold so cold that it will, you know, break your teeth. And then he did it once again, uh, when he shattered all of those White Walkers, and there was the one still alive. Right. So this uh, next passage you're about to read sort of foreshadows the magical abilities of ice when Tormund asks John if his sword can cut cold. A dance with dragons, John 12. Tormund turned back. You know nothing. You killed a dead man, I, I heard. Man's killed a hundred. A man can fight the dead, but when their masters come, when the white mists rise up, how do you fight mist, crow? Shadows with teeth, air so cold it hurts to breathe, like a knife inside your chest. You do not know, you cannot know. Can your sword cut cold? We will see, John thought, remembering the things that Sam had told him, the things he had found in his old books. Longclaw had been forged in the fires of old Valeria. Forged in dragon flame and set with spells. Dragon steel, Sam called it. Stronger than any common steel. Lighter, harder, sharper. But words in a book were one thing. The true test came in battle. You are not wrong, John said. I do not know. And if the gods are good, I never will. So, yeah, Dunk, what do you think about this? <laughs> well, when I first saw that, that sword Longclaw shatter that white walker up at Hardhome, I was really excited. For seven years now, we've seen John use Longclaw over and over and over again, but I think its true purpose was, you know, to serve him out there in the fight against the others. And that's pretty much one of the main reasons that they were able to figure out what the main 
you know, weapon would be against these creatures, these things. Very true. It's going to be interesting to see how, uh, what other legendary things happen with this amazing sword, Longclaw. Oh yeah, and while we're talking about it, it's worth mentioning that the director of this episode, um, I can't remember his name right now, but he had debunked the theory that's been going around about Longclaw's eyes turning white when John was coming out of the water. It must have just been a reflection of the sky where they were shooting or the uh, of the uh, a light in the sound stage or wherever they were at that moment, um, just shining off the ruby. So yeah, it was nothing significant. His uh, Nobody was warging into the eyes or anything like that. At least there was no intention of that. <laughs> so a couple weeks ago, we mentioned that there were some Helen of Troy parallels with Circe and Euron. And uh, I think in that vein, it's worth mentioning this week that there was a Marathon parallel with Gendry. In case you're not aware, the name Marathon comes from the legend of Philippides, the Greek messenger. The legend states that he was sent from the battlefield of Marathon to Athens to announce that the Persians had been defeated in the Battle of Marathon, in which he had just fought, which took place in August or September 490 BC. It is said that he ran the entire distance without stopping and burst into the assembly, exclaiming, We have won! before collapsing and dying. There's debate whether he ran 22 miles to notify Athens of victory, or whether he ran 150 miles both ways from Athens to Sparta seeking help in this, uh, in this battle. But obviously the marathons that we have today are the shorter of the two, or at least about the same length, so... That's where that uh, that term comes from. Another thing worth mentioning is the flaming swords that we saw in this episode and their connections with glass candles, potentially, and blood magic. The, uh, the swords are supposedly lit by using blood magic to ignite the blades, and that sort of reminds me of the glass candles that are used in the Citadel for training. We talked about those in a previous week, I believe. But it'll be interesting to see if um, you know to see what role the ga- the glass candles end up playing on the TV show, if if at all, and the books especially. I'm really excited about that. All right, let's move on to some Ravens calls and responses. Our first message comes from Lord Commander Brian Edwards from Deland, Florida. My only takeaway from this episode, from a book standpoint, was that Viserion got turned. Poetic, considering Danny complicitly allowed Viserys, his namesake, to be killed. Kind of karma for Viserion to come back as her enemy. Oh, good point, Lord Commander Brian. That is pretty intense. Hadn't really considered it like that. <laughs> Next, we have a great email that was sent last week by our listener, William Steiner, who noticed some great book references that we missed. William says, I found some great callbacks to the books in this episode. In the scene where Sam is pleading with the maesters, they're having a laugh at him, and they bring up two old prophecies, Jenny of Old Stones and Lodos. Here's the info I found on a wiki of ice and fire. Jenny of Oldstones was the wife of Duncan, the prince of dragonflies. There are many songs written about her, including Jenny's song, which the ghost of High Heart always wants to hear. She wove flowers in her hair. Prince Duncan Targaryen loved Jenny so much he married her against his father's wishes, breaking his betrothal to the daughter of Lord Lionel Baratheon. King Aegon tried to have the marriage undone, but Duncan refused to give her up ultimately giving up his rights to the throne for her. She was friends with a woods witch who prophesied that the prince that was promised would be born from the line of Prince Ares and Princess Rhaella. When King Jaehaerys II heard the prophecy, he arranged for the marriage between his two children. So here we have even more confirmation that John is the prince that was promised. 
being that he is the grandson of Ares and Rhaella. Lodos was a drowned man who claimed to be the living son of the drowned god. Following the death of Heron the Black, Lodos was crowned king of the Iron Islands with a driftwood crown by two score priests gathered at Naga's bones on Old Wick. When King Aegon I Targaryen attacked the Iron Islands to put down several rebellions, or several rebellious would-be kings, Lodos turned to his god and called on the krakens of the deep to drag down Aegon's warships. When the beasts failed to appear, Lodos filled his robes with stones and walked into the sea to, quote, take counsel, unquote, with his father. Thousands followed him. Their corpses would wash up on the shores for years to come, except for Lodos's own body. This, I think, is a reference to Euron taking out huge chunks of Danny's fleet. Would love to hear your thoughts on these juicy bits. Good work, man. I I heard those in passing and totally forgot to look them up, even after rewatches. But yeah, I think these are uh, some pretty interesting stories. There's lots of different theories about Jenny of Old Stones and who she is and what her significance is. And um, if you haven't heard any of those, I would advise Googling them. I don't really have time right now to uh, look any, anything else up myself and, and talk about it here, unfortunately. But definitely search for theories regarding Jenny of Old Stones. And I don't remember hearing about Lodos before. This is my first time hearing that, um, as, you know, as far as I'm re- recalling it. So that's really cool to, to hear about taking all the all the stones in his clothing and sinking himself is pretty uh pretty hardcore definitely really hardcore thanks william for your email i really appreciate it good to hear from you guys now we have another email from our friend lady willie of the mile high who raises a great question sir duncan i just finished listening to your most recent episode of still smug game of microphones book talk as i listened a question popped into my head I'm a non-book reader, but fully plan to listen to the Audible books once the series has wrapped up. Thanks for schooling all us non-bookies. You're welcome. Here's my question. Is Danny the first Targaryen to ever, quote, birth, unquote, dragons? I'm not sure how the dragons come about in the books. I'm assuming in the natural way of dragons laying eggs, but in the books, is there ever any mention of another character who, who mothered dragons the way that Danny did? Or is this completely unique to her? Thanks for your insight. Lady Willie of the Mile High, Camper of Mountains, Wrangler of Cats, and First of Ballet Moms. So that is a really cool question. This is definitely the first time that dragons have been hatched in this manner um, by, you know, <laughs> a blood magic sacrifice, essentially. Um, and it's really cool to, to have uh, experienced through the TV show and the books. Previously, um, other Targaryens have attempted to hatch dragons, so I'll read a couple passages here for you to, um, to illuminate those accounts. A Storm of Swords, Davos 5. Lord Husband, said Queen Selyse, you have more men than Aegon did 300 years ago. All you lack are dragons. The look Stannis gave her was dark. Nine mages crossed the sea to hatch Aegon III's cache of eggs. Baylor the Blessed prayed over his for half a year. Aegon the Fourth built dragons of wood and iron. Arion Brightflame drank wildfire to transform himself. The mages failed. King Baylor's prayers went unanswered. The wooden dragons burned, and Prince Arion died screaming. Queen Selyse was adamant. None of these was chosen. Was the chosen of Relor. No red comet blazed across the heavens to herald their coming. None wielded Lightbringer, the red sword of heroes, and none of them paid the price. Lady Melisandre will tell you, my lord, only death can pay for life. 
Next, we have a passage from Feast for Crows, Samuel 1. There were dragons here 200 years ago, Sam found himself thinking as he watched the cage making a slow descent. They would have just flown to the top of the wall. Queen Alisan had visited Castle Black on her dragon, and Jaharis, her king, had come after her on his own. Could Silverwing have left an egg behind? Or had Stannis found one egg on Dragonstone? Even if he has an egg, how can he hope to quicken it? Baylor the Blessed had prayed over his eggs, and other Targaryens had sought to hatch theirs with sorcery. All they got for it was farce and tragedy. In the mystery night, Dunk learns that Aegon has an egg. Your dragon's egg? They put it in his cradle. Dunk was so used to egg that sometimes he forgot Aegon was a prince. Of course they'd put a dragon egg inside his cradle. Well, see that you don't go mentioning this egg any t where anyone else is like to hear. I'm not stupid, sir, Egg lowered his voice. Someday the dragons will return. My brother Daron's dreamed of it, and King Ares read it in a prophecy. Maybe it will be my egg that hatches. That would be splendid. Would it? Dunk had his doubts. And it's particularly sad because um, later in Egg's life, um, and in case you guys don't know this, it's kind of a spoiler if you haven't really read through the Duncan Egg novels or anything. It doesn't happen in the books, but this is history that's been accounted for since. Um, Aegon rose to be the king, Aegon V of Westeros, the just, and Sir Duncan the Tall he raised to be the lord commander of his Kingsguard. And they both died together in a tragedy known as the Tragedy of Summerhall. Summerhall was like one of the Targaryen families, like like vacation houses, essentially, like another place where they would go to travel occasionally. And in what people um, speculate was a an attempt by Aegon to hatch his egg. The whole place was engulfed in flames, and um, lots of people died. And ironically, this was the day that Rhaegar was born, if I remember correctly. And later in Rhaegar's life, he would often go back to Summer Hall. Um, and and when he would return, he would have written a sad song, which would make the women weep. But his, me his melancholy attitude um, is often ascribed to being born amidst the tragedy of Summerhall. More stuff about hatching eggs. Let's see, we have another quote from the Mystery Knight. Now you mock me. A true knight would never mock his king. The fiddler sounded hurt. I hope you will put more faith in what I tell you when you see the dragon hatch. A dragon will hatch? A living dragon? What, here? I dreamed it. This pale white castle. You, a dragon bursting from an egg. I dreamed it all, just as I once dreamed of my brothers lying dead. They were twelve and I was only seven, so they laughed at me and died. I am two and twenty now, and I trust my dreams. Dunk was remembering another tourney remembering how he had walked through the soft spring rains with another princeling. I dreamed of you and a dead dragon, Egg's brother Daron had said to him. A great beast, huge, with wings so large they could cover this meadow. It had fallen on top of you, but you were alive and the dragon was dead. And so he was, poor Baylor. Dreams were a treacherous ground on which to build. As you say, my lord, he told the fiddler. The world of ice and fire, the reigns of the dragons, or sorry, the reign of the dragons, the conquest. Of the five dragons who had flown with Aenar the exile from Valyria, only one survived to Aegon's day, the great beast called Balerion the Black Dread. 
The remaining two dragons, Vagar and Meraxes, were, young, were younger, hatched on Dragonstone itself. The World of Ice and Fire, the Targaryen kings, Viserys I. Rhaenyra bore two more sons, Lucerys called Luke, and Joffrey during her marriage to Sir Lenor Valerian, and each one was born healthy and strapping, with the brown hair and pug nose that neither Rhaenyra nor Lenor possessed. Among the Greens, it was said that they were obviously the sons of the Breakbones, and many doubted whether they could be dragon riders. But at Viserys's command, each had a dragon's egg placed in his cradle, and each egg hatched, producing the dragons Vermax, Arax, and Tyraxes. The king, for his part, ignored the rumors, for he clearly meant to keep Rhaenyra as his heir. Another later son of theirs, um, the dragon egg, dragon egg never hatched. So yeah, there's been lots of attempts to hatch dragons and lots of successful ones, but none involving um, any type of scenario such as Daenerys. And during the times when the previous dragons had been hatched, dragons were still a phenomena, so it wasn't like a magical thing that had happened for the first time in a couple hundred years. So it wasn't too unusual for the dragons. I mean, it was definitely, you know, still like a shot in the dark, essentially, to get them to uh, to hatch, but it wasn't unheard of at the time. Um, and yeah, there's pretty crazy stuff. People died, people... <laughs> Yeah, man, people did stupid stuff, and a lot of people died because of dragon eggs and prophecies. Really, really sad stuff. We have another email from Archmaester Rennie. Sir Duncan, I just finished listening to Game of Microphones and was quite intrigued by something you said near the end, that John may be immune to cold the way that Danny is immune to fire. That symmetry would make some sense. Is there any evidence for that in the books? I can't think of anything, but I may be missing something. I'm also wondering exactly what John's status is in terms of alive, dead, or something else. Martin was quoted recently as saying that when someone's been resurrected, that they're not breathing. John said on the show recently that um, that what those opposing the army of the dead have in common is that, quote, we're breathing, unquote. And indeed, when he was resurrected, he took in a big breath. But I wonder if there are, in the books, shades and nuances of being brought back from the dead it's easy to believe that Lady Stoneheart and Beric, who's getting less and less human with each resurrection, aren't breathing. The Whites probably aren't. What about the White Walkers themselves? Drogo must have been breathing because when he was brought back, or when he when he was brought back, because Danny kills him by smothering him. Will John's resurrection in the books be different, because he's warged into ghost and will have his consciousness stored away until his body's brought back? Between the books, the show, and Martin's comments, the questions of the status of the resurrected is a bit muddy. But the question of John's status was made acute by this last episode. When they've chipped his frozen clothes off, we see this clothes off. We see the scars from his attack by the Night's Watch brothers, but unhealed wounds, which suggests that he isn't quite alive. So while he may be able to fulfill viewers' longings by having sex with his aunt, <laughs> um, is he unable to father a child as she is to conceive? Is he as unable to father a child as she is to conceive? Are they the end of the Targaryen line, or is it left to Tyrion to refound the Targaryen dynasty? So many questions, so few episodes left to answer them, and so few books for that matter. I'm beginning to think the Winds of Winter may be 1,800 pages long and a Dream of Spring even longer. Only, if only, Archmaester, please. <laughs> Valar de Harris, Archmaester Rennie. Wow, lots of good questions. Um, I don't think there's really any evidence for John 
being immune to cold in the books, but it's just an idea I had after realizing how long he was under that water for and how long he rode on that horse with the freezing wet cold. Anybody, any normal human would die 10 times over um, with that experience, I'm sure. In terms of whether John is alive or dead or something else, you're right, Martin was quoted recently saying that their blood doesn't flow, like the, the fire whites, basically, um, that type of stuff. So he, in the books, he probably won't be able to have kids unless there's some type of miracle. And um, only death can pay for life, so maybe Viserion's death will pay for a life of a child with him and Danny. Um, let's see, what other questions do you have? Um, the White Walkers themselves are actually living, um, so they've just been transformed into ice beings. Drogo was, I don't think Bro Drogo ever actually died. He was just gravely ill when um, Miri Mazdur used her blood magic, so he was never technically brought back as far as I know. Um, other things, let's see, Benjen, his, he's sort of a resurrected being, or no, not Benjen, Cold Hands in the book, he's a, a resurrected, intelligent white, it seems, and he, his, uh, his hands are black because the, the blood pools in the extremities, and so his blood is definitely not pumping. Um, good questions. There's, uh, you know, we'll have to wait and see with a lot of this stuff, I think. Next, we have an email from Caroline Collins, or Carolyn, sorry if I'm pronouncing that wrong. Hi, Sir Duncan. Great episode this week. I'm really enjoying you doing the Still Smug episodes every week now, since there's so many interesting parallels and cool foreshadowing in previous books. And the fact that we don't know what's coming makes me enjoy the book nods even more as I watch each new episode of the TV show. I was really surprised this week with the death of Thoros of Mir. I really thought that he would be used to resurrect someone, but they killed that idea pretty fast. I know there is some significance with the flaming sword being part of the prophecy of the prince that was promised, but why do Thoros and Beric fight with flaming swords? It's clearly super helpful against the whites. Is that a Lord of Light thing? I'd be interested in your thoughts on this. I did love the nod to the info in the books about how Tormund Giantsbane supposedly had sex with a bear when he says, <laughs> we make the, the most of what we're given, or something to that effect, when the conversation turns to the fact that there are no living women left for many miles. Then what do we meet? A bear. I suppose this also ties back to the bear and the maiden fair song in episode in which, um, and episode in which Brienne, now Tormund's professed love, has to also battle a bear, although that bear was alive. Something tells me the bear we met this week would not appreciate Tormund's advances. <laughs> I loved Tormund and the Hound's growing rapport this week. Two great characters we've never seen interact before. It was very cool. The fact that Daenerys does not want to be called Danny made me smile, since that's what Gurm calls her the whole way through the series. Tell something tells me we'll see her called Danny again. I agree. And also makes me wonder about the, sh the author's voice since it's written in third person, but from the character's point of view. So does book Danny call herself that in her head? I guess TV show Danny has a little hesitation letting John call her that. Why? White dragon. What? I saw the chains and at first didn't get it until I saw the hole in the ice. So crazy. Will the Night King ride it? I'm thinking if that's the case, we might get a dragon dog fight resembling the dance of dragons mentioned in the world of ice and fire. This has always captured my imagination, and I'm so excited we might be able to see it on screen. Wow. I I got this uh, the idea to cover the Dance of the Dragons from this email, just so you guys know. Um, so thank you very much, Caroline. <laughs> well, the penultimate episode has a habit of changing the game in a big way, and last night's installment was no exception. I'm sure you enjoyed it as much as I did. Thanks again for your podcast, and good luck with this coming semester's studies. <laughs> thank you. Valor de Harris. Caroline Collins, or Carolyn.
Thanks, Carolyn. Um, great message. Lots of cool stuff. You helped a lot with this uh, this podcast today, so I appreciate your um, you know all the connections you made and letting me know about them. <laughs> um, I'm just as excited as you, and I I I was actually certain that Thoros was going to die this week, although I was hoping and speculating that it might be to re- revive or in the process of reviving John. Um, I had posted about that on the Game of Microphones page, so I'm sure you could, sure you could find my theory on that if you. Uh, if you search for it, but um, yeah, it's 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 pretty crazy. Now, now they have to survive without having that uh, their their healer on hand, which is pretty wild. All right, I want to give another big thank you to our friend Obsidian Crow for helping us out this week on Still Smug and guest hosting with me. You can check him out at Facebook at Obsidian Crow Leatherworks and Obsidian Crow Cosplay. And don't forget to check out his awesome wolf dog, Grey Wind the Wolf Dog, on Facebook as well. Okay, so that'll mostly wrap up today's installment of Game of Microphones Still Smug Book Talk, but stay tuned after I give out our contact information for a special extended reading of The Birth of Daenerys' Dragons, in honor of the passing of her and our beloved Viserion. Like I was saying, contact me. If you have any questions, theories, ideas, or feedback that would be more appropriate for this spoilery zone of Still Smug than the regular Game of Thrones podcast, or Game of Microphones podcast, sorry, that involves book info or theories that may relate to the show, please don't hesitate to call in or email us. I'd be happy to include your book-related feedback and questions in Still Smug. If you'd like to call, you can call us at 813-563-3739. That's 813-JOFFREY. If you'd like to write in, you can email us at game at podcastica.com. Check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash gompodcast, and be sure to check out the other great podcasts at podcastica.com. This is Sir Duncan signing off. Thanks, everybody, and Valar Margulis. Now, for the birth of dragons. A Game of Thrones, Daenerys 10. Over the carcass of the horse, they built a platform of hewn logs, trunks of smaller trees and limbs from the greater, and the thickest, straightest branches they could find. They laid the wood east to west, from sunrise to sunset. On the platform they piled Caldrogo's treasures, his great tent, his painted vests, his saddles and harness, the whip his father had given him when he came to manhood, the Eric he had used to slay Kal Ogo and his son, a mighty dragonbone bow. Ego would have added the weapons Drogo's bloodriders had given Danny for bride gifts as well, but she forbade it. Those are mine, she told him, and I mean to keep them. Another layer of brush was piled about the call's treasures, and bundles of dried grass scattered over them. Sir Jorah Mormont drew her aside as the sun was creeping towards its zenith. Princess, he began. Why do you call me that? Danny challenged him. My brother Viserys was her king, was he not? He was, my lady. Viserys is dead. I am his heir, the last blood of House Targaryen. Whatever was his is mine now. My queen, Sir Jorah said, going to one knee. My sword that was his is yours, Daenerys, and my heart as well, that never belonged to your brother. I am only a knight, and I have nothing to offer you but exile, but I beg you, hear me. Let Khal Drogo go. You shall not be alone, I promise you. No man shall take you to Vice Dothrak unless you wish to go. You need not join the Dosh Kaleen. Come east with me, Yi Ti, Karth, the Jade Sea, Ashai by the Shadow. We will see all the wonders yet unseen, and drink what wines the gods see fit to serve us. Please, Khaleesi, 
I know what you intend. Do not. Do not. I must, Danny told him. She touched his face fondly, sadly. You do not understand. I understand that you loved him, Sir Jorah said in a voice thick with despair. I loved my lady wife once, yet I did not die with her. You are my queen, my sword is yours, but do not ask me to stand aside as you climb on Drogo's pyre. I will not watch you burn. Is that what you fear? Danny kissed him lightly on his broad forehead. I am not such a child as that, sweet sir. You do not mean to die with him? You swear it, my queen? I swear it, she said in the common tongue of the seven kingdoms that by rights were hers. The third level of the platform was woven of branches no thicker than a finger, and covered with dry leaves and twigs. They laid them north to south, from ice to fire, and piled them high with soft cushions and sleeping silks. The sun had begun to lower towards the west by the time they were done. Danny called the Dothraki around her. Fewer than a hundred were left. How many had Aegon started with, she wondered. It did not matter. You will be my Kalasar, she told them. I see the faces of slaves. I free you. Take off your collars. Go if you wish. No one shall harm you. If you stay, it will be as brothers and sisters, husbands and wives. The black eyes watched her, wary, expressionless. I see the children... Women, the wrinkled faces of the aged. I was a child yesterday. Today I am a woman. Tomorrow I will be old. To each of you I say, give me your hands and your hearts, and there will always be a place for you. She turned to the three young warriors of her cause. Jogo, to you I give the silver-handled whip that was my bride gift, and name you Ko, and ask your oath that you will live and die as the blood of my blood, riding at my side to keep me safe from harm. Jogo took the whip from her hands, but his face was confused. Khaleesi, he said hesitantly, this is not done. It would shame me to be blood rider to a woman. Ego, Danny called, paying no heed to Jogo's words. If I look back, I am lost. To you, I give the dragon bone bow that was my bride gift. It was double curved, shiny black and exquisite, taller than she was. I name you Ko and ask for your oath that you should live and die as blood of my blood riding at my side to keep me safe from harm. Ego accepted the bow with lowered eyes. I cannot say these words. Only a man can lead a Kawasar or name a Ko. Rakaro, Danny said, turning away from the refusal. You shall have the great Arak that was my bride gift with hilt and blade chased in gold. And you too I name my Ko and ask that you live and die as blood of my blood, riding at my side to keep me safe from harm. You are Khaleesi, Rakaro said, taking the Eric. I shall ride at your side to Vais Dothrak beneath the Mother of Mountains, and keep you safe from harm until you take your place with the crones of the Dosh Kaleen. No more can I promise. She nodded, as calmly as if she had not heard his answer, and turned to the last of her champions. Sir Jorah Mormont, she said, first and greatest of my knights, I have no bride gift to give you, but I swear to you, one day you shall have from my hands a long sword like none the world has ever seen, dragon forged and made of Valyrian steel, and I would ask for your oath as well. You have it, my queen, Sir Jorah said, kneeling to lay his sword at her feet. I vow to serve you, to obey you, to die for you if need be. Whatever may come? Whatever may come. I shall hold you to that oath. 
I pray you never regret the giving of it. Danny lifted him to his feet, stretching on her toes to reach his lips. She kissed the great knight gently and said, You are the first of my queen's guard. She could feel the eyes of the Kalasar on her as she entered her tent. The Dothraki were muttering and giving her strange sideways looks from the corner of their dark almond eyes. They thought her mad, Danny realized. Perhaps she was. She would know soon enough. If I look back, I am lost. Her bath was scalding hot when Eerie helped her into the tub, but Danny did not flinch or cry aloud. She liked the heat. It made her feel clean. Jiqui had scented the water with the oils she had found in the market and vase Dothrak. The steam rose, moist and fragrant. Doria washed her hair and combed it out, working loose the mats and tangles. Eerie scrubbed her back. Danny closed her eyes and let the smell and the warmth enfold her. She could feel the heat soaking through the soreness between her thighs. She shuddered when it entered her, and her pain and stiffness seemed to dissolve. She floated. When she was clean, her handmaidens helped her from the water. Eri and Jiqui fanned her dry, while Doria brushed her hair until it fell like a river of liquid silver down her back. They scented her with spice flour and cinnamon. A touch on each wrist, behind her ears, on the tips of her milk-heavy breasts. The last dab was for her sex. Eerie's finger felt as light and cool as a lover's kiss as it slid softly up between her lips. Afterwards, Danny sent them all away so she might prepare Khal Drogo for his final ride into the Nightlands. She washed his body clean and brushed and oiled his hair, running her fingers through it for the last time, feeling the weight of it, remembering the first time she had touched it, the night of their wedding ride. His hair had never been cut. How many men could die with their hair uncut? She buried her face in it and inhaled the dark fragrance of the oils. He smelled like grass and warm earth, like smoke and semen and horses. He smelled like Drogo. Forgive me, son of my life, she thought. Forgive me for all I have done and all I must do. I paid the price, my star, but it was too high, too high. Danny braided his hair and slid the silver rings onto his mustache and hung his bells one by one. So many bells, gold and silver and bronze bells so his enemies could hear him coming and grow weak with fear. She dressed him in horsehair leggings and high boots, buckling a belt heavy with gold and silver medallions about his waist. Over his scarred chest she slipped a painted vest, old and faded, the one Drogo had loved best. For herself she chose loose sand silk trousers, sandals that laced halfway up her legs, and a vest like Drogo's. The sun was going down when she called them back to carry his body to the pyre. The Dothraki watched in silence as Jogo and Ego bore him from the tent. Danny walked behind them. They laid him down in his cushions and silks, his head towards the mother of mountains far to the northeast. Oil, she commanded, as they brought forth the jars and poured them over the pyre, soaking the silks and the brush and the bundles of dry grass, until the oil trickled from beneath the logs and the air was rich with fragrance. Bring my eggs, Danny commanded her handmaids. Something in her voice made them run. Sir Jorah took her arm. My queen, Drogo will have no use for dragon's eggs in the Nightlands. Better to sell them in a shy. Sell one and we can buy a ship to take us back to the free cities. Sell all three and you'll be a wealthy woman all your days. They were not given to me to sell, Danny told him. She climbed the pyre herself to place the eggs around her sun and stars. The black beside his heart, under his arm. The green beside his head, his braid coiled around it the cream and gold down between his legs. When she kissed him for the last time, Danny could taste the sweetness of the oil on his lips. As she climbed down off the pyre, she noticed Miri Mazdur watching her. You're mad! 
the god's wife said hoarsely. Is it so far from madness to wisdom? Danny asked. Sejora, take this Meiji and bind her to the pyre. To the... My queen, no, hear me. Do as I say. Still he hesitated until her anger flared. You swore to obey me. Whatever might come, Ricaro, help him. The god's wife did not cry out as they dragged her to call Drogo's pyre and staked her down amidst his treasures. Danny poured the oil over the woman's head herself. I thank you, Miri Mazdur, she said, for the lessons you have taught me. You will not hear me scream, Miri responded as the oil dripped from her ear and soaked her clothing. I will, Danny said, but it is not your screams I want, only your life. I remember what you told me. Only death can pay for life. Miri Mazdur opened her mouth, but made no reply. As she stepped away, Danny saw that the contempt was gone from the Meiji's flat black eyes. In its place was something that might have been fear. Then there was nothing to be done but watch the sun and look for the first star. When a horse lord dies, his horse is slain with him, so he might ride proud into the nightlands. The bodies are burned beneath the open sky, and the cowl rises on his fiery steed to take his place among the stars. The more fiercely the man burned in life, the brighter his star will shine in the darkness. Jogo spied it first. There, he said in a hushed voice. Danny looked and saw it, low in the east. The first star was a comet, burning red, blood red, fire red, the dragon's tail. She could not have asked for a stronger sign. Danny took the torch from Ego's hand and thrust it between the logs. The oil took the fire at once, the brush and dried grass a heartbeat later. Tiny flames went darting up the wood like swift red mice, skating over the oil and leaping from bark to branch to leaf. A rising heat puffed at her face, soft and sudden as a lover's breath, but in seconds it had grown too hot to bear. Danny stepped backwards. The wood crackled louder and louder. Miri Mazdur began to sing in a shrill, ululating voice. The flames whirled and writhed, racing each other up the platform. The dusk shimmered as the air itself seemed to liquefy from the heat. Danny heard logs spit and crack. The fire swept over Miri Mazdur. Her song grew louder, shriller. Then she gasped again and again, and her song became a shuddering wail, thin and high and full of agony. And now the flames reached for her drogo, and now they were all around him. His clothing took fire, and for an instant the call was clad in wisps of floating orange silk and tendrils of curling smoke, gray and greasy. Danny's lips parted, and she found herself holding her breath. Part of her wanted to go to him as Sir Jorah had feared, to rush into the flames, to beg for his forgiveness and take him inside her one last time, the fire melting the flesh from their bones until they were as one forever. She could smell the odor of burning flesh, no different than horse flesh roasting in a fire pit. The pyre roared in the deepening dusk like some great beast, drowning out the fainter sound of Miri Mazdur's screaming and sending up long tongues of flame to lick at the belly of the night. As the smoke grew thicker, the Dothraki backed away, coughing. Huge orange gouts of fire unfurled their banners in that hellish wind, the logs hissing and cracking, glowing cinders raising on the smoke to float away into the dark like so many newborn fireflies. The heat beat at the air with great red wings, driving the Dothraki back, driving off even Mormont, but Danny stood her ground. She was the blood of the dragon, and the fire was in her. She had sensed the truth of it long ago, Danny thought as she took a step closer to the conflagration, but the brazier had not been hot enough. 
The flames writhed before her like the women who had danced at her wedding, whirling and singing and spinning their yellow and orange and crimson veils, fearsome to behold, yet lovely, so lovely, alive with heat. Danny opened her arms to them, her skin flushed and glowing. This is a wedding, too, she thought. Miri Mazdur had fallen silent. The god's wife thought her a child, but children grow and children learn. Another step, and Danny could feel the heat of the sand on the soles of her feet, even through her sandals. Sweat ran down her thighs and between her breasts and in rivulets over her cheeks where tears had once run. Sir Jorah was shouting behind her, but he did not matter any more. Only the fire mattered. The flames were so beautiful, the loveliest things she had ever seen. Each one a sorcerer robed in yellow and orange and scarlet, swirling long smoky cloaks. She saw crimson fire lions and great yellow serpents and unicorns made of pale blue flame. She saw fish and foxes and monsters, wolves and bright birds and flowering trees, each more beautiful than the last. She saw a horse, a great gray stallion limbed in smoke its flowing mane a nimbus of blue flame. Yes, my love, my sun and stars, yes, mount now, ride now. Her vest had begun to smolder, so Danny shrugged it off and let it fall to the ground. The painted leather burst into sudden flame as she skipped closer to the fire, her breasts bare to the blaze, streams of milk flowing from her red and swollen nipples. Now, she thought, now, and for an instant she glimpsed Khal Drogo before her, mounted on his smoky stallion, a flaming lash in his hand. He smiled, and the whip snaked down at the pyre, hissing. She heard a crack, and then the sound of shattering stone. The platform of wood and brush and grass began to shift and collapse in upon itself. Bits of burning wood slid down at her, and Danny was showered with ash and cinders, and something else came crashing down, bouncing and rolling, to land at her feet, a chunk of curved rock, pale and veined with gold, broken and smoking. The roaring filled the world, yet dimly through the firefall Danny heard women shriek and children cry out in wonder. Only death can pay for life. And there came a second crack, loud and sharp as thunder, and the smoke stirred and whirled around her and the pyre shifted, the logs exploding as the fire touched their secret hearts. She heard the screams of frightened horses and the voices of the Dothraki raised in shouts of fear and terror, and Sir Jorah calling her name and cursing. No, she wanted to shout to him. No, my good knight, do not fear for me. The fire is mine. I am Daenerys Stormborn, daughter of dragons, bride of dragons, mother of dragons. Don't you see? Don't you see? With a belch of flame and smoke that reached thirty feet into the sky, the pyre collapsed and came down around her. Unafraid, Danny stepped forward into the firestorm, calling to her children. The third crack was as loud and sharp as the breaking of the world. When the fire died at last and the ground became cool enough to walk upon, Sir Jorah Mormont found her amidst the ashes. Surrounded by blackened logs and bits of glowing umber and the burnt bones of man and woman and a stallion, she was naked, covered with soot, her clothes turned to ash, her beautiful hair all crisped away, yet she was unhurt. The cream and gold dragon was suckling at her left breast, the green and bronze at the right. Her arms cradled them close. The black and scarlet beast was draped across her shoulders, its long, sinuous neck coiled under her chin. When it saw Jorah, it raised its head and looked at him with eyes as red as coals. Wordless, the knight fell to his knees. The men of her cause came up behind him. Jogo was the first to lay his arak at her feet. Blood of my blood, 
he murmured, pushing his face to the smoking earth. Blood of my blood, she heard Ego echo. Blood of my blood, Ricaro shouted. And after them came her handmaids, and then the others, all the Dothraki, men and women and children, and Danny had only to look at their eyes to know that they were hers now, today and tomorrow and forever, hers as they had never been Drogo's. As Daenerys Targaryen rose to her feet, her black hissed, pale smoke venting from its mouth and nostrils. The other two pulled away from her breasts and added their voices to the call, translucent wings unfolding and stirring the air. And for the first time in hundreds of years, the night came alive with the music of dragons. <laughs>